listening to www.infinitesmile.org. Enjoy these Zen-inspired talks given by Michael McAllister. We've been having so many disasters with the recording apparatus over the last couple of months that um, I've decided to attempt, at least, on on trying this uh, this cool little high tech version. Um, I'm going to ask that when uh, we have Q and A, if you could just do me the, the big favor of. Uh, speaking clearly, and I'm then going to probably repeat your question just for our friends at home, and that forces me to listen very carefully, which is a good thing. One of the greatest ways we can express love is to listen, actually and to see, to really see someone. And what I mean by listening is listening with every bit of our being to their distress, to their joy, to whatever it is that another person is expressing that we simultaneously want to take in and also give our heart over to them. It's such a generous thing to really hear someone, and I know that everyone in this room has felt that at some point in time before, where they have really felt heard. You don't have to agree with me, but at least hear me is some, oftentimes what, what the, you know, the core of an individual, an ego, really just wants to be heard, and what happens is when it's heard, its boundaries start to fall. It starts to connect. It starts to feel a a different kind of merger, a dance with the other. So that self and other, at least in that moment, have an opportunity. This is why during practice discussion, we try to hear and participate with each other. In our day-to-day, we try to hear and participate. So often, we can fall prey to hearing as a way of creating uh, an armory for ammo. We hear, and it's like we become uh, we become judge and jury like this really quickly. And it can really get in the way of our uh, authentic participation, our ability to appropriately respond, whatever is, whatever is there. And I can recall five years ago on this day, as can each of us, where we were when the, we saw the second plane hit the, hit the tower, or we saw the second tower come down, or we, we saw the, uh, uh, you know, the, these images and felt these, uh, literally felt these tears from people. And as the years have gone on, we've watched our response as a nation, as the, as the United States of America, 
uh, obviously get varied reviews from the rest of the world and indeed from people in this country. So when I was at school that day and I had my room filled with uh, kids of all ages actually at the high school, I got to school early. I told my wife, you know, she, we, we watched the, uh, watched the news for a little bit. And I said, you know, I better get to school. Um, I'm going to open up the classroom. At least they'll have somebody there when, you know, uh, uh, the, the newsmen and women start giving their analysis. And my room was, I'd never had this happen before, was filled by about uh, 7.35 in the morning, a full 25 minutes before school started. Nobody was ever there, that, but the, the room was filled and I was there with a, another teacher. And I did my best to listen. And I think it was very helpful. I can't speak for the students that I had near me on that day, but it was helpful for the day to listen very carefully to the sadness, the rage, the attachment, and to hold that as compassionately as I could. I think I was terribly unsuccessful in some ways too. I found myself immediately uh, clinging to judgments about our uh, inept foreign policy about the inevitable response that was going to come, rather bellicose response. Uh, and then as that kind of transpired, it, again, great opportunity for practice. How can we participate? How can we listen? How can we go at this war from a place of peace? How can we how can we practice peace so much and then deal with this war that's being waged against so many people, including ourselves? Most of us indeed are at war with ourselves perpetually for some reason or other. We look within and find conflict, find turmoil, find suffering. will always feel pain in life. But that suffering is what the Buddha and all the other enlightened masters have said there's a way out of that. We can get out of that. That we can let go. Because suffering comes from mind. It comes from our relationship to whatever pain we may have to whatever clinging we might have in our self-system, clinging to this idea, clinging to that person, this relationship, this idea, this leader, this teaching, whatever. When, whenever we stop this, the gift we have to offer is an appropriate response, and that appropriate response is one that comes from wisdom and compassion. It is wise in that there is a deep knowing of the cosmocentric reality that, or spiritual, uh, you know, how spirit encompasses all and yet holds us all. Rather, it, it goes past us and carries us in all situations.
Spirit is never not there. With that wisdom, we then can see any disaster that befalls us or befalls our tribe. And we can have a different relationship to what's happened. Our response then can hopefully engage from this wise place. Any action from that wise place is compassionate, is caring. And it doesn't mean kumbaya. It doesn't mean, well, you know what? If we just gave everyone a hug, everything would be fine. Mm -mm. So how do you engage with people that want to kill you? I don't know. What is the appropriate response? It's such a great question, a koan for Buddhist practice. Where we can go with this, even if we can't come up with a methodology, here, here's step, step one, be, be nice. Step two, you know, it, it doesn't quite work that way, but what we can do is work on our own hearts and minds, our relationship to our own fear, and from that place, we can literally start to engage the world from an entirely different perspective that ultimately undoes everything anyway. We're conditioned in this life to see that there's only contest. That there's just, there's, there's, constant, there's constant this against that and so forth. But the teachings really do show us otherwise. That there is more. That it's not this or that. Us against them. It's that which is sacred in us is that which is sacred in them. That's the wisdom. Responding to whatever situation from that wisdom is compassion. And this always, for me at least, begs the question, is this really the world that, is this a world where peace can reign? I don't know. But is that really the question? Is what we're looking for to impose our sense of peace on the rest of the world? Or is what we are trying to communicate, express, and activate in ourselves and others a deep generosity, a deep listening, a deep seeing. Are we accepting of what is, or do we fight it? Are we open to whatever is in front of us, or do we avoid it? Are we consciously able to maintain an egoless, discriminating awareness as we live each day, or do we continually and incessantly judge? Because war always exists as the, you know, the focal point or the central reality, the, the place of deepest psychological and spiritual gravity for those who build 
defenses to what actually is happening. Uh, to people who, who feel that their personal sense of truth is what is right and anybody else's truth is wrong. That style of living carries war with it. It is war. It, it, that is the birth of war. And so really our work here is non-war. And non-war is nothing other than love. And love is nothing more than balance. And balance is nothing more than depth. And there is perpetual depth, perpetual balance, perpetual love in the letting go and the surrender, the acceptance of what is then engaging from that place of surrender. That is compassion in action. That is spirit in action. And it's non-war related. It has no, it has no, relation to, no relationship to war. It is peace. And it's what we are at our deepest level. He who knows himself knows God. Muhammad said that. So, I guess to unpackage this a little bit carefully, but to, to look at where we've kind of we've kind of wa watched a uh, uh, an event in the world generate contraction and beauty. Beauty in that people responded with absolute and total care and compassion. Selfless grace abounded five years ago in lower Manhattan. All right? That was a gift. That was a gift to each of us to be able to watch that. That which is heroic in others is also heroic within us. We're also able to watch the evils of attachment and where they can lead us. What they can lead us to do. And in the years since we have been able to kind of uncover that as well. But every single thing, every single piece of that allows for a direct realization of spirit. A direct realization of not our egoically bound sense of self or our tribe or group, us versus them, or the world. We all have to take care of each other. It even goes a step further into it's all one thing. It's all precisely one singularity. This deep singularity is an ultimate truth. And those individuals that can allow that ultimate truth of infinity to transplant their own sense of personal or egoic truth become those agents of peace. So, just some warning shots here. If there is a personal truth that you hold that's your own, 
a personal truth that you really are holding on to. By its very nature, it is bound. And if that truth is bound, you're only seeing a partial version of what's available. That which is bound veils the ultimate from our sight. If we cling, we miss. Just like watching our feet only as we hike up through the Marin Headlands. If you're only watching your feet when you hike, trust me, you're missing the most beautiful, spectacular view imaginable. So this realignment towards instead of just watching our feet as we hike through life to actually looking at the view as well does not mean that we deny what our feet are doing. It means that we increase our scope. We increase our perspective and we broaden it rather significantly. And this supports a different relationship to all that is sacred and all that is profane. We shift. We shift. So to find this ultimate truth, we sit still. We sit still even when we're walking down the street, even when we're cooking dinner, even when we are in conflict with a spouse or with the television or with our favorite football team. This allows us to be fearless in all situations because we know we have friends who are doing the same exact thing who are also working hard on this. It's also important to know that every single sage from all time has worked in this way. Every single Buddha has practiced in this way, has dealt with their trials, tribulations, attachments, preferences, with language, with duality, with this, with that, with war, with politics. Not football, but, you know, most everything else. So, can peace be possible in this world? Is there a kind of base, base question? Of course... It can, depending on our relationship to the world. If our relationship actually is truly expansive, then, as it says in the Course, the course in Miracles, is it not impossible that peace be absent here? Is it not impossible that peace be absent here? In other words, that peace that spirit, that love, it's all here infinitely, just as infinity never goes anywhere. It's not moving. It's all here for our, I hate to use this verb, but for our taking. And then once we do that, it's there for our giving. So how do you engage someone who wants to kill you? And besides with love and compassion. 
how do you engage someone that wants to kill you in a way that's absent love and compassion? No, and obviously you've got to do it with love and compassion. Right, you have to do it with, that's right. Uh, I once heard uh, a contemporary teacher say, the, the very question was, well, okay, well, what would we do if Hitler, you know, if we had an opportunity, wouldn't the compassionate thing have been to kill Hitler? And without missing a beat, the instructor said, absolutely, it would be the compassionate thing to kill Hitler, but you better do it with a smile, and it better come from love. And, and pure intention. Exactly. Now, that's a real slippery slope. Right? Which is exactly why we have these very, very strict ethical guidelines within every authentic wisdom tradition. Because you get to this place where if there's no right or wrong, then I can't be wrong, which is a haven for ego to do whatever he or she wants, right? So the first step is recognizing ego, recognizing clinging, recognizing contraction. And from that place, that which recognizes all that is infinitely non-egoic, infinitely expansive, infinitely loving. So what happens is then that which is totally free, if it doesn't have guidelines to bring it back into the world, it can exist as a very, very dangerous entity for an ego, a limited view, that perceives, perceives itself as being ultimate in its scope. You get an enlightened ego. Enlightened egos are very dangerous. So we have these precepts, you know, we have these things that say, you know, a disciple of Buddha does not steal, does not kill, does not lie, does not abuse his or her sexuality and does not abuse intoxicants. Right? Well, if we, if we take that into, into the mix, it says a disciple of Buddha does not kill. Does that mean we, we shouldn't, shouldn't kill Hitler? You know, if, if knowing that he is systematically trying to annihilate an entire group of people, wow, what a great question. What would the appropriate response be? With historical hindsight, I think there are very few people very few Buddhists that would say, no, 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 let him do what he's going to do. Don't try to stop him because everything works out perfectly. Well, hmm, that's a good, that's a really good question. And there's a whole bunch of not knowing around that. That said, the practice, to those that wish us harm, we don't let their unconsciousness spark the fires of our own. We allow for their unconsciousness to, like everything else, point us towards expansion. And then from that expansion, can we respond? Can we respond appropriately, whatever that appropriateness might be? That's the work.
sorry, I can't answer your question there. <laughs> I, I was expecting a, a You weren't expecting an answer, good. <laughs> That's a great way to be in this uh, Q&A forum. Just don't expect an answer. It's always better that way. <laughs> yeah. As you were speaking about that, and you were also speaking about listening, it reminded me of a story that one of my teachers told me once, responding to a situation where people wanted to harm her. And how that? How your teacher was responding to a situation with people that wanted to harm her. Right. Got it. Okay. And um, it was interesting because the whole the whole scene shifted from the response that she had to that. She was, um, there's a whole lot of different things that go into this story, but she was in the inner city, um, a young, very young white woman in the middle of a, a black neighborhood, and she got off the train, and this gang of men surrounded her um, with the obvious intention of harming her, and she said she didn't know exactly you know, what it was that came over her, it's just that she felt that there was a greater sense of spirit there with her. And she just stopped and she moved around the circle of these men, looking each of them in the eye and just stated where she had been that day and what had happened, this dramatic thing that had happened to her earlier in the day. And for some reason, maybe because they felt heard or acknowledged or something or because she was responding from such an authentic place all of a sudden instead of harming her they decided to take her under their wing and protect her and hmm. they took her back on the train and they said you know this is our we're protecting this woman and you all just leave her alone and they escorted her all the way to wherever it was that she was going and I just thought that's the most amazing story. Isn't it? Yeah. Um, and I don't think that there's a rule that that would happen every time, but somehow or another, coming from that authentic place. There's a story so similar to that uh, about the Buddha, how the Buddha, once there was, a, there was an onslaught of, of invaders that were coming to this particular place, and the Buddha went right out into the battlefield and sat down, and they stopped, you know? And of course, in typical Buddhist hyperbole, scriptural hyperbole, it was all about, you know, thousands upon thousands of horsemen stopped. And they put down their arrow, you know, this whole, you know, very dramatic stuff. And then uh, the villagers were like, wow, man, that was really cool. How'd you do that? He's like, oh, yeah, I don't know. I have no idea. And then uh, the next day, they say, Buddha, 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 can you, can you do that again? Do that trick again? And he said, nope. So why not? They wouldn't stop this time. So it's, it's not magic. It's presence. Okay? And literally the presence to know. Uh, I mean, to, to be like just like that woman that you're describing, just delivering fully who you are with every single person around that means you harm and means to love you there's always an opportunity for it to awaken not only yourself, but them. You know, clearly in her case, it did. And I hope it does for all of you. Thank you. Thank you.